You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to this BMJ podcast on prostate cancer. I'm Sophie Cook, a GP and assistant editor at the BMJ. And in this practice special, we'll be looking at the diagnosis and management of the condition. Later on, we'll be hearing about androgen deprivation treatment, when it should be used, in whom, and how to manage the side effects. But first, let's look at the controversial issue of prostate cancer screening. I got some practical advice from Timothy Wilt, Professor of Medicine at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine. I was really interested in your review. You said that the greatest risk factor associated with prostate cancer diagnosis is actually undergoing a PSA test. Can you explain a bit more about that? Well, traditionally we think that uh, risk factors are, are things attributed to the person, such as age, race, family history, and those are all important factors. But since the institution of widespread PSA testing, the number of prostate cancers has risen dramatically because PSA blood test picks up very, very small tumors which would otherwise not come to the attention during a patient's life. So undergoing a PSA blood test can essentially double a man's chance of being found to have prostate cancer. So one of the best ways that we can reduce the chance of being diagnosed with prostate cancer is to reduce PSA testing or in men who decide to undergo a PSA test to increase the intervals between testing or raise the threshold for what we call abnormal that precipitates biopsies. Okay. Is there any evidence that that there's benefit to be had from screening patients? There have been five large randomized controlled uh, trials of screening. Four of them have shown no benefit. There was one large study conducted in seven different countries throughout Europe that showed a very small benefit after about um, 14 years of follow-up. In that study, there was one fewer prostate cancer death among 1,000 men being uh, screened with the PSA blood test. Mm. But if you look at the total amount of information, it's probably much less than that. And you mentioned the harms associated with prostate cancer screening. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yes. I think most people think that screening for prostate cancer with the PSA blood test involves simply a, a blood test. What could be the harm of undergoing a blood test? Well, the fact is is that undergoing a, a blood test often results in a cascade of events that can result in additional testing treatments that have serious harms and often have little to no benefit. Undergoing a PSA blood test can result in a positive result in about one in four individuals. Those tests often are what we call false positives. They're elevated, but there's no evidence of prostate cancer. But if the blood test is elevated, men frequently undergo a prostate biopsy. And that prostate biopsy can result in some serious harms. One-third of men who undergo a prostate biopsy have at least moderate bothers with that, which includes bleeding, pain, infection, and one in 100 men are hospitalized after a prostate biopsy, typically due to uh, infection and sepsis. So those harms really can be quite serious. But the single biggest harm related to the PSA blood test 
is detection of cancers that would never cause a problem in a man's lifetime. That is called overdiagnosis. It looks like prostate cancer on the microscope. We fear it uh, because we fear cancer. And it's very hard not to treat something that's considered cancer. So the vast majority of men who are detected with prostate cancer by PSA testing undergo treatment. And treatment have harms. Those harms are serious, they're frequent, they occur early, and they can be persistent. I think it's important for our readers to sort of appreciate this and also to uh, to be able to convey these messages to patients when they come in because I know that a lot of men do still come and ask for PSA testing. What do you think are the key messages, if you had to summarise in a few sentences, how to convey to patients the concerns that you have about prostate cancer screening? What would you say to them? Well, first, if a man comes into my office and asks about the PSA blood test, I'll say, I recommend against the PSA blood test for you because prostate cancer screening benefit does not outweigh the harms. Instead, I recommend that we focus on tests and treatments that are likely to make a positive difference in your life. For example, let's focus on a healthy diet and exercise. If they're smokers, let's stop smoking. Let's work on controlling your blood pressure, cholesterol, getting a flu shot, and, and screening for colon cancer if, if those are due. I would like to say that I don't routinely bring up the discussion of prostate cancer screening in all my patients. If they bring it up, I'll say something like what I just did. Mm -hmm. If they want to talk about it further, there are some additional things that I will discuss with them at greater length. But for many of my patients, they have other health care concerns that they want to talk about. Are there any sort of situations that our readers should actually consider a PSA in? I mean, obviously, if someone who's completely healthy comes to see you with no risk factors, but when would you suggest that a PSA might be sensible in a patient? If they say, Doc, you know, I've I've heard what you've had to say, and I've weighed that potential small benefit with the harms that you've described, I'd still like to get that PSA blood test. I would order it. I think that it's important for doctors to provide that information to patients, allow the patients to process that and come up with their own decision, and if they still would like that blood test, for physicians to honor that request. We do know that men of black race and those with a family history are at modestly increased risk for prostate cancer. However, there is not good evidence that the trade-offs of benefits to harms would markedly differ for them. So I provide the same discussion with those individuals as I do with any of my other patients. However, if a man comes in with symptoms that a physician really believes may be due to prostate cancer, such as a uh, blood in the urine or a marked change in their urinary symptoms, that becomes more of a diagnostic rather than a screening procedure. And furthermore, if a man already has a history of prostate cancer, monitoring with a PSA blood test is different than screening. That would be monitoring. And so moving on from screening, once a man is found to have clinically localized prostate cancer, can you just briefly outline what the treatment options available are? They include observation, where we just monitor the individual and treat if and when symptoms develop with treatments designed to try and reduce symptoms. That's called watchful waiting or observation. 
active surveillance is similar to that, where we monitor the individual, but would provide what we call definitive treatments, such as surgery or radiation, if there are some signs of tumor progression. For example, a rising PSA value or a change of the histology on the prostate biopsy through subsequent biopsies. Then there's surgery to remove the prostate gland called radical prostatectomy, and there are a variety of different strategies with that, which really fall into the domain primarily of the surgeon. And then a variety of radiation techniques. One would be called external beam radiation, and there are a variety of different ways to deliver that. And then there's what's called interstitial or brachytherapy, where they actually implant small little seeds into the prostate gland that provide radioactive therapy that way. And then there's some other uh, therapies um, that are somewhat on the horizon and are getting some, some use. One would be called focal therapy, typically with a kind of high-intensity ultrasound that targets the tumor itself and tries to use ultrasound to kill cancer cells. And finally, some things like cryotherapy, where we freeze the prostate. What I think is important for primary care providers and their patients to know is that there are a variety of treatment options. But for the vast majority of men with early stage prostate cancer, they will not die or be bothered by progression of prostate cancer in their lifetime, even if they don't undergo treatment. There have now been several large studies, and one that we conducted and recently published called the PIVOT study, that compared observation to surgery. That is, we carefully monitored patients and treated if and when they developed symptoms by using palliative treatment and compared that to surgery. And after a follow-up that went out to 15 years, compared to surgery, observation resulted in similar length of life, avoidance of death from prostate cancer, while also avoiding the harms related to surgery. Professor Wilt, thanks for joining us on this podcast today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So what are the treatment options once prostate cancer is established? Here's our practice editor, Mabel Chu. I have with me on the line Benjamin Thomas, who's a consultant urologist at the Cambridge University Hospital Trust in the UK. Benjamin's here to discuss with us the use of androgen deprivation treatment in prostate cancer. The first thing, I guess, is we need to define uh, what exactly androgen deprivation therapy is and what it's used for. Androgen deprivation treatment generally refers to treatments that act to reduce the effects of testosterone and other androgens. The idea of this is that it will decrease uh, or slow down the progression of prostate cancer. Usually this is in two forms. It can either take uh, the form of surgical castration or more commonly now in the form of medications uh, such as luteinizing hormone releasing hormone agonists or LHRH agonists. Uh, and also anti-androgens. LHRH agonists, that title self-explanatory, do anti-androgens work further downstream? They do. So they tend to work at the androgen receptor level and essentially inhibit uh, signaling through the androgen receptor. 
are generally two classes of antiandrogens, uh, steroidal antiandrogens such as cyproterone acetate and also non-steroidal antiandrogens such as bicalutamide um, are examples of these two classes. Taking drugs obviously sounds a lot more civilised than the older methods of surgical castration. How well do these treatments actually work? So overall these treatments are quite effective in reducing the complications from advanced prostate cancer such as uh, spinal cord compression and ureteric obstruction and local complications of prostate cancer. However, they have never really been shown to improve overall survival in prostate cancer. And are there any safety concerns with these drugs? The main complication of treatment, or most serious complication, uh, can occur with uh, patients that have impending spinal cord compression and bladder outlet obstruction. And these medications can sometimes cause a testosterone flare-up syndrome or phenomenon uh, which worsens uh, the spinal cord compression uh, and bladder outlet obstruction and is an emergency. Uh, this occurs in about 10% uh, men with metastatic disease. Now, what can be done to prevent or minimise this um, testosterone flare phenomenon? When testosterone flare-up phenomenon might occur, uh, it can be prevented with the use of an antiandrogen in combination with an LHRH agonist. Another option would be to give an LHRH antagonist, which is another class of medication, and this usually does not result in a testosterone flare-up syndrome. A third option would be surgical castration in patients that were willing to undergo this procedure. Some of the more common side effects include hot flushes, which occur in approximately 50 to 80% of patients, uh, and in severe cases this can be treated with other medications such as cyproterone acetate. Another common side effect is development of a metabolic syndrome, uh, which occurs in approximately half of men on androgen deprivation treatment. Uh, diabetes develops in approximately 11% of men and associated with metabolic syndrome is an increase in fat distribution and a decrease in muscle mass. Other common side effects include osteoporosis uh, which uh, occurs in around about 19% of men on androgen deprivation treatment after five years. Uh, this can be treated with calcium supplementation, vitamin D, and also bisphosphonates. There are other common but no less important side effects such as erectile dysfunction, which can have enormous implications for patients. Would you like to discuss these? Yes, uh, erectile dysfunction and loss of libido uh, occur in a number of men who are on androgen deprivation treatment. This number is somewhere between 10 and 17%. This can be treated uh, with medications such as phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors such as Viagra or intracavernosal injections to the penis such as uh, prostaglandin. 
libido, however, is slightly more difficult to treat. And gynecomastia is something that a lot of men uh, do worry about, isn't it? It is, and it does con occur in a high proportion of patients. In particular, it occurs in around 60% of men on non-steroidal antiandrogens. This can be treated with medications such as tamoxifen, or in severe cases it can be treated with directed radiotherapy. Some of these side effects are perhaps not life-threatening, but, but really quite serious and, and can certainly be devastating for people's quality of life. What do you say to patients before you start them on these drugs? I think it's very important to counsel patients uh, at length about the potential side effects and complications of treatment. I think it's also important to emphasise that we will monitor for these side effects very closely and also that there are treatments available for almost all those side effects that we have mentioned. Um, You've mentioned gynecomastia, for instance, and we do have a medication as well as treatment in the form of radiotherapy that, that could be used for this. And, and likewise for many of the other complications such as osteoporosis and the metabolic syndrome and its associated changes, we also do have uh, treatments for this. But as with all treatment, uh, prevention is often better than cure and so monitoring and assessing for these side effects early is uh, crucial. So what are the main indications for using androgen deprivation treatment? The main indication for androgen deprivation treatment is in metastatic prostate cancer. In locally advanced prostate cancer, androgen deprivation treatment is recommended with radiotherapy but not with surgery. Also, in patients that are not uh, fit for radiotherapy or surgery uh, as treatment for localised prostate cancer, in those scenarios, androgen deprivation treatment could also be used. Okay, and how are they administered? LHRH agonists are given subcutaneously as a depot injection. They are usually given uh, between one and six monthly, depending on the preparation. Antiandrogens are a class of drugs that are usually given orally. Okay. Now, could you very quickly run us through what are the sorts of things we ought to be monitoring for um, as GPs who, who will be seeing these patients? Firstly, with regards to prostate cancer itself, uh, the serum PSA should be monitored every three to six months uh, assessing for disease progression. Also testosterone levels uh, should be measured a month after starting androgen deprivation treatment to assess whether testosterone castration levels have been achieved. Further tests that should be considered are a serum haemoglobin and creatinine uh, to look for anemia and renal failure, which uh, can be the result of either the disease or the effects of the drugs. Also, given the risk of osteoporosis, dual energy x-ray, absorptiometry or DEXA scanning uh, should be considered in men at high risk of developing osteoporosis. 
So it's important to do a, a risk assessment, for instance, with a FRAX score. Indeed. So the FRAX score is quite useful in patients that are considered at risk after risk stratification. With regards to the metabolic effects that often occur with androgen deprivation treatment, a haemoglobin A1C level uh, as well as a fasting glucose uh, and lipid profile should also be considered to assess for uh, diabetes and also hypercholesterolemia. Specific with anti-androgens, liver function tests should also be monitored at regular intervals as anti-androgens can be associated with alterations in liver function. Benjamin, thank you for this summary of the benefits and risks of androgen deprivation treatment in prostate cancer. No, no problems at all. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Both those practice articles on prostate cancer screening and androgen deprivation therapy are now up on bmj.com. That's everything for this special edition. Our regular podcast will be back on Friday, where we'll be looking at the outcomes of the Francis Report. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.